0: This is In Sickness.
1: I'm Angeliki, I'm a doctoral student in history, and I study the history of disease. I'm Maya, and I work in public health in developing areas. Hi.
0: Hi. We're going to do sleeping sickness, and we are so excited. Okay, sleeping sickness, or African sleeping sickness, or trypanosomiasis, or... African trypanosomiasis uh, for the very obvious and unsurprising reason that it is really only found in sub-Saharan Africa. So again, as usual, we love a well and easy to remember (laughs) named disease. Um, It's also called sleeping sickness for a very obvious reason, which is that it makes you sleepy. I mean, it does a lot more than that, but it like messes up your sleep cycles. So we'll talk about that when we talk about symptoms. The disease was also called Nagana disease, usually when it comes to describing sleeping sickness in animals. And Nagana comes from a Zulu word. So I tried to dig deeper into the origin of that word, but the internet gave me like seven different definitions.
1: Uh, so my my trusty Cambridge world history of human disease uh, says that it comes from the Zulu word for powerless or useless.
0: So I also read that and I also tried Google translating it with Zulu, but I wasn't sure how old a word it was. So sometimes I got like power and think, but powerless or useless made the most sense. So Mm. let's agree on that. So, okay. This was arguably the most confusing part of the whole thing is like, what actually is this disease? So I really thought it was a virus, but actually sleeping sickness is a parasitic infection, which takes this to a whole nother level of just like nasty it's caused by something called trypanosoma brucei which is a form of kinetoplastida what am i talking about i don't really know but kinetoplastida are flagellated protists which is just like nonsense sounds i don't yeah, i was gonna parasite. say that
1: clarifies everything <laughs> i
0: know i was like going deeper and deeper into wikipedia and i was like this is not helping me. Whatever. It's it's a tiny, tiny parasite. It looks like a worm. Mm, great. So trypanosoma brucei infects all vertebrates. Um, and there are several forms of that, but there are only two forms that can infect humans, Gambianese and Rhodesianese, which I think by the name, you can tell where they were typically located. The more common Gambianese, or TBG, as I will refer to it, it, is responsible for approximately 98% of cases. This parasite is pretty exclusively carried by the tsetse fly. In theory, it can be spread through other means like a blood transfusion or an infected mother giving birth, but that's not really as common. It's pretty much all the flies responsibility.
1: Um, I did read that there was some human, human to human transmission as well, though. Like, uh, I think I read somewhere that it was also sexually transmitted. Is that true? So
0: these are all these things where it like can be, but it's not super common. So it's basically like if there's a wound and there's blood and you get blood on blood, like Mm -hmm. it's right. It's a parasite. So it's like not impossible. There's like a list of ways that it can happen, but it's not (laughs) easy either. As I mentioned, this disease is largely isolated to Africa And it really stays within these ranges that the tzitzit fly naturally lives in. And there's sort of this like belt across the western and middle parts of Africa where the fly can live. And this is the belt where we still find sleeping sickness. And we have four millions of years. And I'm sure that Angeliki's is going to talk about the way this affected development and domestication. But basically, this strip sort of runs just below the Sahara Desert, across the whole Gold Coast, Cote d'Ivoire, Gambia, Guinea, Ghana, through Cameroon, the DRC, and over to Rwanda and Burundi. And then there's other locations like Kenya, Uganda, Mozambique, and Malawi that also sort of have this issue. Should I have like warned people to get a map of Africa before I started. (laughs) It's just like kind of across the middle and down the right hand side. We would highly
1: recommend that you pull up a map of Africa.
0: And then there's also chunks around Sudan and I believe Egypt, but like this big belt is sort of across the middle. What's interesting is when you look at a map of cattle raising areas and sea fly areas and how they sort of avoid each other, you can see how it affected development in Africa. And I'm sure we'll put one of those on our Instagram, but I am getting ahead of us. So something else to mention, we talk about how it's transmitted is we've talked about reservoirs before, but a quick recap, basically it's an organism usually where a disease can remain active. And then once that organism comes into a space where, you know, the conditions are correct for it to spread to others, it does. So for sleeping sickness, this reservoir is animals. Wild animals are a lower risk because they're moving around. They're not really around people as much. But domesticated animals provide the perfect reservoir. So if they're sick and they contain the parasite, a tsetse fly can bite them. And then because they're domesticated, they're near a human settlement. And then there are plenty of humans nearby to bite. And then
1: you get humans dying of sleeping sickness. And the same fly can theoretically bite many individuals over the course of its lifetime. Yeah. Okay.
0: So this being said, this kind of transmission is much more likely to happen in more rural areas where people are at risk of being around animals. Also, as a side note, that tsetse fly bites during the day. So that's sort of one to avoid it. Whereas like the mosquitoes that carry malaria, for example, bite during (laughs) the night. So what I'm trying to say here is you are never (sighs) safe. Also, I think I talk about this later, but the tsetse fly just like doesn't respond to insecticide or like. Like anti-bug spray. Great. So Good to know. Best of luck to you. Anyway. <laughs> so let's say you, you know, you weren't covering your arms and legs and you got nibbled. Nibbles. Once you, <laughs> once you get bitten by an infected tsetse fly, there are two basic stages of disease. The CDC helpfully notes that many symptoms are common to both stages. So <laughs> you can't really tell how far along you are in the illness, which is literally the least helpful thing. But anyway,
1: it's kind of reminiscent of last episode for HPV when the guy was like, you know how you can tell if it's a malignant tumor, you just leave it and see if she dies. Yeah. How far along are you? I don't know. Are you dead yet? Not that far,
0: I guess. (laughs) So first you have the hemolymphatic stage um, and that's where the disease typically incubates in the body for one to three weeks. And you, classic, get symptoms that are just like every other disease out there. Fever, headache, weakness, malaise, some swollen lymph nodes, maybe a bit of a rash. Sometimes there is a telltale swelling of the nodes at the back of your neck, and that's called Winterbottom's (laughs) sign, named after Thomas Masterman Winterbottom, a truly hilarious name. Obviously, this makes it really hard to get an early and correct diagnosis in your first stage of illness because it's just like any of the other things. Then you get the neurological phase. And we know from experience that anything that has to do with your brain is always going to be bad news. So basically what happens is this parasite gets into your nervous system by breaking through the blood brain barrier, which is just the worst thing I've ever heard. (laughs) So, breaking through the BBB (laughs) with TBR, the the rarer form, um, it, it advances to neurological 20 to 60 days after infection, which is quite fast. The more common TBG, which is Gambianese, takes 300 to 500 days after infection to break through the neurological barrier, which is just like so long and also the most common form. So, we just fully hate that. Like that's just terrible news because you have this parasite in your body for over a year, maybe two, and then it breaks through this barrier and whatever. The most clearly identifiable symptoms of this neurological stage is something that we call a sleep wake disturbance. And this is where we get into why it's called sleeping sickness. So basically people have a really messed up sleep cycle often experiencing a reversed sleep cycle where they're falling asleep during the day and can't sleep during the night. Um, They have insomnia, random bouts of sleepiness. And on top of that, there can be tremors, weakness, paralysis. You can develop extra muscles. Also, aggressiveness, apathy, or even hallucinations or psychotic reactions. I mean, you've got a parasite in your brain. So like things are getting weird up there. If it is not treated, sleeping sickness is fatal. Your brain deteriorates to the point that you enter a coma, all of your organs fail, and then you die. So with the more common Gambianese, you would die after several years because it's taken so long to reach that point. With the less common TBR, it's a few months. And you can receive treatment, but because it's neurological. Like if there's damage, it's, it's not reversible.
1: It's kind of reminiscent of some of the stuff you see in science fiction films, like the parasite that enters your brain.
0: Yeah. Let's talk about prevention and treatment. There's no vaccine or recommended preventative medicine basically. So you need to do stuff like vector reduction measures. And I realized I use the word vector a lot. So I'm just quickly going to talk about what that means. Basically, a vector is something that carries the disease from one place to another. So like with the plague, the vector was fleas. With this, the vector is the tzitzit fly. So a vector reduction measure would be like spraying insecticide insecticide to kill the flies, right? Because if you can't get bitten by the fly, then you can't get sick. Most of the preventative measures are things like Vector reduction, covering yourself up with a heavy material so that you aren't exposed to bites, wearing neutral shades that don't attract the flies. Uh, Flies are also attracted to moving cars, the shade of trees and bushes and like dark, cool areas. So everywhere you would want to hang out in the hot African summer, uh, you should be extra vigilant and (laughs) make sure you're not getting bitten. (laughs) Insect repellent, like I said, has not been shown to be useful against sea flies. So (laughs) if you have been bitten by a fly, early diagnosis is actually quite hard. And this is something I will talk a bit about later. But basically, parasite levels in your blood will be quite low once you're initially bitten. And so it's hard to see in a blood sample. And there isn't really a rapid test for it. The most effective method for looking for the parasite is a lumbar puncture, otherwise known as a spinal tap it's very invasive, not easy to do. It's not something you would do in like a remote rural area that doesn't really have a lot of tools available to it. So they do a spinal tap and they look at it under a microscope and try to see the amount of parasite that's in the sample they took. And that's not readily available. Like that's the most, that's the gold standard. They will take samples of blood, lymph node, chancers or marrow and like examine those in advance to see if they can see a parasite, and see if there's enough reason to try and do the spinal tap. But it's so it can be so hard to see early that that could lead to really late detection. If you do have sleeping sickness, like it finally gets found, it's treated with different antimicrobials or other medicines, depending on what stage you are in and what type you have. But honestly, they're so unsure about the capacity of these medicines that you have to be followed for 24 months after treatment and regularly tested. So the earlier they catch it, the safer the treatment becomes. One of the drugs that they use um, is called Suramin, and it's 100 years old. And I will talk a bit more about that later also. Fully not even commercially available in the U.S. You have to, like, send a special request to the CDC to get the treatment, But it is on a list of like essential medicines, even though it has an insane amount of side effects. Like it is so bad for you, but just no one's bothered to come up with a better one, which I will also talk more about. In summation, there are still (laughs) like 65 million people at risk for sleeping sickness in Africa. And so sleeping sickness has made it to the list of the world's neglected tropical diseases. However, WHO vector and public health eradication efforts have made an impact and it is targeted for elimination as a public health problem by 2020 and sustainable elimination by 2030. And as of now, annual cases are under 1,000 a year, which is at its lowest ever. So it's not all bad.
1: Why don't you, why don't you start? So this episode will be going really far back in time, like evolutionary time. Uh, We have a lot of information about sleeping sickness in humans, uh, and also Nagana and animals. Maya covered that for the simple reason that it's been around forever. Like literally it has been around as long as humans have. Um, So we'll be doing a whistle-stop tour of trypanosome parasites in Africa, and then we'll be talking a lot about colonialism. I want to talk about colonialism more broadly and uh, the role of disease there because we use the word colonialism so much that I think we might even forget what it means. Um, So colonialism at at its most basic level is the process of one group of people subduing another in order to take control of their resources. So in practice, this normally includes violence at the individual level, Um, displacement and systematic control of indigenous populations through a variety of methods so if you think back to previous episodes and all of my ranting about the colombian exchange so the exchange of uh of biological entities on top of people when old world and new world collide that's just a framework for understanding and talking about colonialism That, in my opinion, obscures what it actually means and like kind of covers up the uh, individual acts of violence that are involved there. In the case of sleeping sickness, we see how colonial activities exacerbate this disease by disrupting indigenous practices. And then they develop practices around that to control the disease by actually further controlling local populations and blaming local populations for resurgences in this disease. In other words, the medical establishment is a mechanism for coercive colonial control.
0: Yeah, this disease is just such a good framework for talking about this. Like, it really just blew me away. Yeah,
1: like it's it's a great statement on uh, on like the value of environmental history because you actually see the impact that ecological change has on human populations. It's also just like a great framework for uh, for talking about violence and oppression and the forms that that can take, especially medicine as it is done in 18th to early 20th century Africa and beyond. Uh, That is a program of systematic control over people's bodies. And that is definitely a part of the colonial framework and part of the reason it's so successful. And we continue to see the reflections of that in health systems
0: and healthcare and Opinions of health systems. Oh, absolutely. Awesome talk
1: about <laughs> um, and opinions of disease and opinions of the people carrying disease. Just to put <laughs> it in perspective for you guys, like the early 1900s are not that long ago, <laughs> but actually, not that much has changed in the like social cultural kind of situation. <laughs> so, as we talked about before, uh, sleeping sickness is ancient. So humans evolved with trypanosomiasis, but sleeping sickness is actually poorly adapted to humans, which some people say is what accounts for the variability of symptoms. So in my reading, I found out that there's a theory out there saying that um, the tsetse fly was actually a huge part of human evolution and that we were selecting for the hominids who were most resistant to trypanosomes. Yeah, we've got some evidence that uh, animal trypanosomiasis, i.e. Nagana disease, was a problem in ancient Egypt. And we have something called the veterinary papyrus of the Cahoon papyri, which I love. I love that. (laughs) Which uh, dates back to the second millennium BC, and this describes a cattle disease, and it also describes the remedy, which is an ointment an ointment, which was used as a treatment against the bite of the the tsetse flies. Another super cool thing from 2000 BC to 1300 BC, otherwise known as the Middle Kingdom, they actually adjust the stream course of the Nile. Like they full on decide, we're going to move the Nile River. Vector control. Exactly. And uh, when they were doing this, they actually destroyed the breeding grounds of the tsetse flies. So up until this point... The Egyptians had a really hard time um, breeding particular types of livestock, and eventually, because they have destroyed the scuti flies uh, breeding grounds in the 16th century BC, they're able to introduce horse breeding.
0: So cool! <laughs> I don't know why I think that's so cool. I think that's. I so mean, it's exciting. really <laughs> cool
1: because if you think about what they're using horses for, like the the Egyptians were really famous for their military capability, and part of that was cavalry once you're able to pull the chariots all of a sudden you're able to like technologically outstrip the people around you and it's actually fairly easy to conquer your neighbors so actually there's a direct link between their ability to control sleeping sickness and their ability to expand their empire
0: cool (laughs) it's really cool
1: yeah it is it is and um it means that they can be more effective with their animal husbandry as well which is which is actually like a a a huge boost to their economy, I would imagine. During the Middle Ages, reports of sleeping sickness by Arabs who had frequent trade with West Africa are rampant. So they're active in Benin, Ghana, Mali, Songhe. The geographer Abu Abdallah Yakut, who's active uh, in the 12th and 13th, 13th centuries, he writes of an underground village whose entire population of people and animals were asleep and emaciated. Terrifying. Um, and then the historian Ibn Khaldun, um, active in the 14th century, he records the case of the emperor of Mali, who's called Sultan Mari Jata, who died of what looked like sleeping sickness. So I'm going to, I'm going to just quote what he wrote. So this is a friend who is telling him about it. He told me that Jata had been smitten by the sleeping illness, a disease which frequently afflicts the inhabitants of that climate, especially the chieftains who are habitually affected by sleep those afflicted are virtually never awake or alert the sickness harms the patient and continues until he perishes he said so again the friend that the illness persisted in jatas humor for a duration of 2 years after which he died which i think is a really cool primary source text so it was it was called african lethargy or the sleepy distemper which i think is actually quite a cute name for it cute name for a really ugly disease <laughs> The Sleepy Distemper, uh, which is what the Europeans were calling it, and they knew about it in West Africa from about the 14th century, probably because of translations of that text by Khaldun. But that is wild speculation, and (laughs) I promised myself I wouldn't do that. So it's actually common knowledge that those with the swollen cervical glands would die so actually slave traders are acting accordingly and especially arabian slave traders would know to look for those swollen cervical glands and uh, not by the slaves who had them so now we're going to talk briefly about some quote-unquote discoveries within our timeline which is to say that when europeans begin to care <laughs> about <laughs> sleeping sickness or encounter it and and see it as um as a threat to their livelihood within the slave trade, they begin to problem-solve for their own benefit, and they're actually just the most likely to record it and disseminate it. Um, so in the, in the early modern period, everybody's favorite period, <laughs> everybody's, <huh? laughs> human sleeping sickness becomes linked to the slave trade. Um, so ship doctors and other medical personnel report on sleeping sickness deaths, and they investigate them um, because they're trying to solve this problem of this super creepy disease. In 1734, an English naval surgeon publishes an account of the late-stage neurological symptoms of sleeping sickness. And then in 1803, um, another Englishman, a physician this time, publishes a report about the swollen lymph lymph glands. And the most interesting part of that is that he actually mentions that this is a well-known feature for a long time among Arabian slave traders who looked for the symptom when buying slaves. And then you have the Scottish missionary and explorer, David Livingston, who is the first recorded European to link Nagana with the bite of tsetse flies. And this is in 1852. And then in 1895, the Scottish pathologist and microbiologist David Bruce identifies trypanos- trypanosomes as the cause of Nagana and sleeping sickness. So that's where the name T. Brucei comes from.
0: This is like when we talk about how, like, medical racism or medical sexism actually negatively affects everyone involved. Everybody in these areas was like, don't get bit by that fly. You will get sick. Like, they knew. And all these Europeans were like we know better. We know exactly what's going on. Just don't get those slaves. It's probably a disease only African people get. Like they made all these assumptions and they started getting sick and dying too. And if they just listened and not been racist as all hell, (laughs) we could have avoided this entirely. Like it negatively affected them until
1: somebody else was like, I've come up with a magical, amazing discovery. I'm brilliant. It is so frustrating. And we still use this terminology. And as we know, our language really matters, like it, it means something, and it has power, so we're, we're naming these diseases after the colonizers, who caused the problem in the first place. It's deeply frustrating. Uh, trypanosomes are first observed in human blood in 1901 in the Gambia, and then you have wave after wave of discussion and discovery about the pathology of trypanosomes uh, and about their transmission. So I won't name all the old white dudes because it's kind of distracting and like besides the point I think although Robert Koch will once again be making an appearance and I'm assuming Maya is going to talk about that it turns out that he's just the worst (laughs) and we're going to come back to this a lot later when we talk about tropical medicine but Robert Koch did a lot for medicine like he 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 definitely had a lot of positive impact on people's health, but that doesn't make him a good person or a responsible practitioner. It just means he made some breakthroughs and he got credit. So back to our timeline. From 1785 to 1840, you have sleeping sickness reported in Gambia, Sierra Leone, and Liberia. And then from 1820 to 1870, it's commonly observed on the Liberian coast. And then some epidemics for you, just like a rough overview from 1896 to 1906 human sleeping sickness killed over 250,000 people in the new British protectorate of Uganda and about 500,000 people in uh in Congo that's a lot of people that is a lot of people um, this became an issue of international importance with repeated European expeditions and conferences on the subject. They had a whole Bureau of Sleeping Sickness, which was founded to combat this problem. And colonial authorities were concerned that sleeping sickness would, and I quote, reduce the utility of the new territories. Classic non-value of human life. <laughs> yeah, we're talking about Belgium. We're talking about Britain. We're talking about France, among among others. Other epidemics happened in 1920 and then uh, from 1970 to the late 1990s.
0: Just really goes to show about how a big part, like what you said about defining colonialism, about it being about like taking resources from another place. Like one of those resources was just human lives. Like it was the availability of them as a labor force or as slaves or as like a million other things. And it wasn't about like individual people. It was about them as a resource, so like it didn't matter until your resource was being harmed. It wasn't about like saving lives, and we will also see more of that. Yeah, when we talk about and how people were
1: treated. Another, uh, I mean, heartbreaking but really cool part of the historiography of empire during this period is like seeing indigenous peoples as part of the landscape, and that's partly uh, a holdover from. Um, Like Christian missionaries back in the 16th, 17th centuries, it very much influences the way that uh, the locals are treated. Uh, They're seen as a source of labor, they're seen as taxpayers, and the way that Mm. their health is conceived of is only in relation to how productive they can be. Partly, that's also to do with how physicians are regarding patients. So you have this mix of uh, dealing with medical practice in the colonies as this problem for productivity, but also an opportunity to experiment. And again, to further your own practice. And that brings us nicely into our discussion of colonialism. After millennia of coexistence with tsetse flies and trypanosomes... (laughs) Local populations had actually developed practices that allowed them to exist alongside tsetse flies, but avoid situations that could lead to widespread epidemics. When you have accounts of early European exploration on the west coast of Africa, you hear advice from the locals to avoid traveling through certain regions during the day to avoid the tsetse flies. And this gives us proof that uh, the locals Actually knew the cause of the sickness or at the very least knew something bad was going to happen and had uh, had incorporated that into their everyday practice, like into the way that they manage their lives. So Europeans obviously didn't acknowledge these achievements. They didn't acknowledge local knowledge. And in fact, their violent economic activities and policies of mass displacement, all of these things destroyed local public health practices and created new ecological niches for flies. So they didn't just take away the ability of the locals to stay healthy on their own terms and keep things endemic. They actually compounded the problem by creating new places for this disease to spread. It's so
0: wild because like settlement, you know, domestication of cattle, trade routes, even the way that like homesteads were built accounted for this. Like it was endemic, but it was not an epidemic. For millions of years. And then these guys came and were like, um, we knew better. (laughs) Shocker. They did not.
1: Yeah. And they didn't just disrupt these practices and destroy this ecological balance that had been created by the locals. They also took the opportunity to blame the locals for getting sick when actually they were displacing communities whose entire social organization was based around locale this really justified excessive disproportionate control of populations and the medicalization of bodies like their response because they see they see the population as being at fault for moving around is to restrict movement and to quite commonly they would just completely dislocate communities and force them to move i was going to give you the example of the Belgian Congo, because it's the most famously brutal colony (laughs) in all of this scramble for Africa. From the 1880s to the 1920s, the Congolese were forced by Belgian oppressors to search for wild rubber to meet their tax demands. These individuals spent longer searching, they traveled further, they traveled by daytime, um, and they Ended up in the gallery forests of Zaire, which are actually full of tsetse flies. And this, on top of mass resettlement and famine, created the perfect conditions, this new ecological niche for the spread of disease. So, in terms of responses to sleeping sickness epidemics, on the one hand, you have ecological measures, so control of the environment, which equates to like destruction of brush, destruction of rainforest, and trying to like destroy habitats of tsetse flies and try to control the flies as vectors of disease. And that was quite common for the British. And then on the other hand, you have medicalization as a response, which is actually far more common. And that's what the Belgians are doing. And that's what the French are doing. Quick comment on these ecological measures, really
0: quickly. I, I just think it's super worth noting that, like, when you look at what the positive, right, like uh, Egyptians changing the flow of the Nile, or even here with um, colonizers coming in and sort of taking all these destructive measures on the environment, you are having a lasting effect on the environment, obviously. But now as we're looking at the climate crisis and environmental change, and we're talking about things like environmental refugees, frequently we talk about that in the context of floods or hurricanes or drought. But it's important to remember that this has an effect on disease too, and it has an effect on vectors, right? So you're changing the places that these animals, insects, diseases can survive and become easily transmitted, and that creates space for more epidemics or even pandemics like what mm-hmm. we're experiencing right now so being an environmental refugee is no longer just about like too much water or not enough water it's also about like where can these vectors
1: of disease live and spread disease mm-hmm. you see the severity of the impact of really like minor changes on the environment and the consequences for the people living there and like sometimes As in the case of the Egyptians, it seems to have worked out well, which probably is why we're uh, we're feeling so positive about that one. But in this more recent and more violent context, where we're talking about it within the framework of racism and uh, imperial expansion, obviously we are less enthused. (laughs) (laughs) So yeah, all that to say that a lot of these measures were fairly effective, but we still don't like them. And I'm about to say something that's going to make you really mad, but um, they called it the sterilization of the human reservoir. Oh God, it's just awful. Isn't that horrendous? <laughs> so part of the medicalization of bodies was forced injection with all sorts of things. So injection with toxic substances in an effort to um, neutralize the parasite
0: in the blood. Yeah. The most common medicine that was being used at that time, there's a name for it that I'm forgetting, but basically the toxicity level of the medicine was so much that the dose that you needed to cure you and the dose that you needed to kill you were like 0.2 milligrams off. Like it was so toxic for your body. It had all these horrifying side
1: effects, which I will also talk about. But. So yeah, to sum up, in order to, in order to control sleeping sickness epidemics... Colonial authorities would either focus on the Tsitsi fly or focus on their victims. So to talk a little bit more about public health as a form of colonial control, health services during this period are put in place as a direct response to human sleeping sickness, and they're really only interested in sleeping sickness. You'll remember I called it vertical health services at the expense of other important public health issues and at the expense of health overall. And this is a problem that I think on the WHO website, they're still trying to combat this. And they're encouraging horizontal health services rather than vertical health services, which I think is quite an opaque way of talking about it. I just uh, put a term out there that I feel like I need to define. So vertical public health just means that you're, uh, you're trying to tackle a specific disease or problem at the expense of other really important public health concerns. So in this case... A vertical public health intervention means that it's tackling sleeping sickness, but it's not looking at general hygiene or anything, really. It's not looking at the well-being of the population. All that to say, we're still feeling the legacies of the way public health was being done in Africa at the turn of the 20th century. Yeah, the
0: other thing ab- about what they mean by horizontal is that there really wasn't an emphasis on preventative medicine in most parts of Africa, or in those parts of Africa that were colonized, because the people who were accessing the services were primarily uh, the white colonialists, and they basically had access to good quality food, life, knowledge, and Uh, they understood how to do preventative medicine. And so basically all the money was poured into secondary and tertiary level of hospital or care. And then they would just target these specific vertical interventions at populations. So then there isn't like when they say horizontal care, what they mean is we're trying to get enough resources together to do actual preventative medicine because all we've got is like, like South Africa is a great example of that. They have this like multi multi multi-million dollar tertiary hospital where, you know, you go for really serious surgeries and interventions, and there's like seven people in it, whereas you go to like one of the three first level sort of preventative basic medicine healthcare facilities, and they are just overflowing with humans, and they don't have enough doctors, and they don't have enough time, and they don't have enough quality care delivery, because there was no money
1: put into preventative care. I have some thoughts about that, obviously. (coughs) I will let you keep going. (laughs) Once again, I'm just thinking that like we're not that far removed from the history we're talking about. Direct repercussions every day. Yeah, there's a continuity there. It's not just that there are similarities, it's just the same system, and it hasn't really been changed. Yeah. So sleeping sickness, malaria, and yellow fever became the impetus for the development of what is called modern tropical medicine. Um, So quick bit of context for you. In the 18th century, medicine... In Europe was becoming more and more professionalized. So that means that non-establishment health practitioners, for example, midwives, anyone who's female and trying to practice medicine, anyone who's seen as not respectable, all of these non-standards, in massive air quotes, uh, practitioners were being pushed out. So hospitals are becoming part of medical training. It's incorporating a lot of surgery and a lot of anatomy and the practice of medicine becomes respectable. And alongside this, physicians are trying to one-up each other with their discoveries, think Robert Koch, and a lot of the time, this is being done at the expense of the patient, who is actually becoming more of a clinical subject. Doctors weren't necessarily interested in curing patients, but rather in learning more about disease. yeah, in the 18th century, what was happening was that because of the hospitals, physicians could actually follow, follow diseases through their entire course. So you have a patient, you know their symptoms, you know what they're suffering from, You know how you tried to teach them, uh, how you tried to treat them, and then if and when they die, you dissect them, and you can actually compare the case notes between the course of the illness while the patient was alive and what happened to their body. And this was in Europe. Like, Europeans doing this to Europeans. So let's get back to Africa now. (laughs) So tropical medicine coming out of this context emerges in the 1880s and 1890s and is trying to solve the health problems in the wider empire. So it's actually reversing the exclusive trend and kind of welcoming researchers from other disciplines such as zoology, helminthology, no idea what that means, and entomology. This community, which is called an epistemic community, which is like a very mm. history term. It's like a, a community that that creates knowledge together. So this community of tropical medicine practitioners, this becomes the establishment, and they're basically trying to solve colonial problems, i.e. trying to make colonies more healthy and therefore more competitive. They also engage in their own colonial program. I have a lovely quote for you here. Uh, they shared a humanitarian view that they were uniquely able to save people from disease, but also from backwardness. They believed strongly in the superiority of European technology, science, and culture, and increasingly saw this superiority through the lens of racial distinctiveness. So I bring this up because I think it's useful to think of these people as missionaries trying to mm. spread the influence of Western European, especially microbiology and bacteriology. To cap off my section, I have a fun but questionable tidbit about a McGill alum. Uh, Lest we think Canadians weren't involved in violent colonial activities at the turn of the century. I'm going to tell you about John Todd, who is a famous figure on his own. He's a really big name in tropical medicine, and he studies at McGill. And in 1901, he arrives in Liverpool because they have a school of tropical medicine that's just been founded there. And he goes on several expeditions to Africa, including one to Senegambia and French West Africa in 1902 to 1903, I'm quoting now, and another to the Congo Free State in 1903 to 1905. And then later on, it says uh, that he became the director of a major laboratory and served as an advisor to the British colonial office, because remember, Canada is a colony still and mm-hmm. he eventually returned to Canada after gaining a prestigious position as associate professor of parasitology at McGill and then i have uh, an excerpt from one of his letters to his mother the part i wanted to highlight is about his travels in africa and his uh, ambitions for for the region and how he sees himself how he positions his work within this project of tropical medicine. The climate is glorious, and someday it will be crowded with white-skinned people who will wonder why their forefathers thought Africa so unhealthy. Oh, Lord. Yeah. (laughs) And I think that's a good place to end for me because it kind of sums it up. Yeah, it really does. Ooh, that gave me shivers. I didn't like that. Bringing health (laughs) to Africa. And for them, healthy means white. And that hasn't changed. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, do you think that that kind of sets us up quite well to enter the modern period? Because, like, if our whole if our whole thing today is um, about highlighting the legacies of colonialism and the legacies of sleeping sickness for us today, like it's kind of important to remember that it's all it's all tied up with racism.
0: Yeah. It's perfect. I mean, it actually just launches directly into where I start. Like I might just even like, let's just keep going. Cause it makes Great. perfect sense. Cause I literally just put like, as you just said, the colonial context influenced the way that sleeping sickness was active across Africa. <laughs> like this is, this is the stage that's been set. It had been endemic in a lot of places across, across central and East Africa, indigenous peoples were well aware of how it worked and how to prevent it. And it wasn't until there was this major disruption of the ecosystem that these these endemic areas turned into severe epidemics. And, and of course, as colonialism began, it's not like it's this magical fairyland of medical services and wealth or at least not for everybody involved, right? Like there's these socioeconomic conditions that you've described, forced labor, changes in living environment, all those things that you talked about created this space for epidemics, like a perfect environment. And as colonialism sort of began to come to a close, those components didn't just they didn't just vanish. They mm-hmm. set the stage for decades of civil war, poverty, inequality, white savior complex, broken health care systems, like all things we're still dealing with.
1: today. Um, I mean, we could we could even have a whole con- a whole debate about whether or not colonialism ever came to a close.
0: Oh, yeah. Yeah. Because the Sorry. infrastructure
1: stayed right.
0: Yeah. The uh, when we say colonialism coming to a close, we mean colonies obtaining Uh, at least nominal political independence from their original colonizers. And there is a lot of nuance there, which I think we will get into.
1: Gotcha.
0: (sighs) Because I think the the post-colonial era does not mean we are free of colonialism. It just means that that form of political structure did not remain the same.
1: Love that distinction.
0: So let's step back a little bit. There were a couple of major sleeping sickness epidemics that I will talk about in short. And we'll start with one that sort of went between 1910 and 1920, which Angel kind of started to touch upon, and we'll just dive in a bit more. And that's largely focused in the Uganda, Kenya, and DRC area. And as you mentioned, it got so bad that even the colonialists were worried. And like you said, again, it's estimated that like a million people died between those three countries. Although, of course, with the record keeping and the racism and not allowing people to get regular treatment, that number is likely even higher. And a large part of the reason behind this epidemic was the total failure of the colonialists to listen to indigenous understandings of disease and how to avoid it, which is something that you covered wonderfully.
1: Thank you. And so
0: we started talking about this drug called Atoxyl and the role Robert Koch played. So let's, uh, this is sort of, it's during that epidemic that, that this becomes common. Colonialists try and treat sleeping sickness with something called sodium arsenate. (laughs) And I feel like just from the name, you can tell that's a bad idea.
1: Oh my God. Poison (laughs) treatments. Basically that becomes an
0: arsenic based drug called which they had originally tested on animals in Europe. And they were like, it basically works. So this should also work on people, which says a lot about how they felt about the people who were getting sleeping sickness in Africa. Also, Atoxil literally means non-toxic, but but it is the most toxic sounding name in the world. And also it's a very toxic medicine. So like just a very (laughs) confusing thing there. Um, and this is where our f- most favorite guy, Robert Koch, comes in. So he actually went down to Lake Victoria during this epidemic and he saw all these people being treated by Atoxel and was like, you are fully poisoning them. This medicine is turning people blind. It's killing them. It has all these awful side effects. Like, Stop. And when I first read that bit, I was like, oh, cool. That's so great. He came down. He saw that people were being poisoned and he put a stop to it. Oh, my no, God. No, a no, white no, no. savior. Great. It's not what it was. It turns out he actually ran medical concentration camps across East Africa, which is regularly ignored as a part of his legacy, as per usual. So what he did is, well, he came down. He identified that um, that this di- this medicine was poisonous. But he was like, Well, if this is poisonous, we have to test out other medicines to find out which one's the most effective and least poisonous. So he essentially did this by identifying a bunch of different medicines and just testing them on human beings without their consent because you couldn't do that in Europe, but you could do it in Africa. Great. He literally himself called these testing facilities concentration camps and he proposed setting up even more of them because they were so effective. By the time uh, Robert Koch left the continent in 1907, he had established himself three sleeping sickness concentration camps in German East Africa and five more in German West Africa, aka Togo and Cameroon. So Koch works with another scientist called Paul Ehrlich, and Ehrlich has an assistant called Roll. And they work together with Bayer, as in Bayer-aspirin. And in 1916, they come up with the first effective drug for treating sleeping sickness. It's called Suramin, which we talked about at the top. And as you may remember, it's still the one we use today. So basically, during this time period, they've got a treatment. They're isolating people from the community. And as soon as it's over, (laughs) we have a new epidemic. There is another round of epidemic of sleeping sickness from 1920 until 1940. This one goes across a variety of African countries for nearly 20 years. The difference being that this time the colonial powers were like a little bit better prepared to manage the epidemic. So in this instance, they already had the more effective treatments available in terms of medicine. And they also started to understand vector control a bit more. Um, like reducing places where tsetse flies could thrive, which is sort of what you talked about, like bush reduction, stuff like that. But they also started to implement mobile teams and do systematic case detection. So that is actually a really effective way of preventing and treating it. This latter idea of systematic case detection was spearheaded by a French surgeon named Jamot, And he had to fight for years to be able to implement this. People were like nah it doesn't matter. Because you have to like go into really remote. Hard to access rural areas. So he just he was a military surgeon. And he just fought and fought for this. And when he finally was allowed to implement it. He managed to reduce prevalence in these areas from 60%. Which is so high. He managed to reduce prevalence from 60% to 40 4% in just under
1: a decade, which is I thought that was a typo. <laughs> Nope. It's not 40, 60%. it's 60 to 4. 60
0: down to 4. Crazy. So, by the end of the 1940s, sort of as this epidemic slows down because they're implementing all these measures, they're doing more of it, there's more medicine, and it it wasn't even close to eliminated, but they were like putting in the work, like it was becoming more effective. And there is big environmental ecological factor in sleeping sickness, like I think we've already identified that. Um, So I want to mention here that one of the ways that they tried to implement vector control was by using DDT as an insecticide (laughs) to eliminate the fly. (laughs) So this started around 1949 when DDT was really coming into full force and they realized that and this is actually crazy, DDT also doesn't repel the tsetse fly. Like these flies are just it's impermeable it's crazy but it does kill them on contact so if you just like coat everything in ddt like something that they're gonna bite for example cattle then they'll die
1: yeah put the ddt on your cattle <laughs> that's gonna it's a great idea well. right
0: Yeah. yeah. So let's talk a little bit about DDT. So DDT is an insecticide, like a really, really powerful insecticide. And we now know that it is extremely toxic. In fact, we don't even know all the potential negative side effects. But like we learned around the 1990s, (laughs) like after 50 years of use, that it's really bad for you. Um, and it has really long lasting effects on individual and environmental health. It It is such an effective insecticide for things like malaria reduction that in some places it's actually still allowed, but it can cause cancer and other serious and immediate negative health effects on individuals like ingesting it can make you really ill. But also it takes six to 10 years to degrade. So, it can proceed up the food chain and get more and more concentrated until it gets to the top of the food chain, which is humans. So Basically, it it isn't processed in your fatty tissue for six to ten years. So it just gets stuck in there. So, like, it gets into the water, where it's then eaten by a frog, which is eaten by a bird, which is eaten by a human. And then the human gets the highest dose of undiluted DDT, which can then affect your reproductive system, your nervous system, childhood development, and more. Like, it gets stuck in oceans and plants, and it's just terrible for everything. Yeah, I'm pretty sure it screws with your pituitary gland as well. Yeah, it does. So, it's just really bad for you. So, it's it's cool that that was what was used. But that being said, it was the most effective control measure thus far. So we're entering the 1960s, and all of these vector control measures are starting to pay off. There is no rampant epidemic. However, what is happening in the 1960s is that many countries in Africa start to gain independence from their colonial powers with a variety of different side effects. So a lot of those side effects are civil war, instability, economic collapse, changing or suffering health systems, as we enter 1970, the banning of DDT. Finally, because the sleeping sickness epidemics had been so under control, and because all of the colonial measures that had been implemented on it were now being removed because these African countries were becoming independent the focus on sleeping sickness was dramatically reduced. So all of these preventative measures, like the mobile teams and all this stuff that were introduced, are all canceled. And you're not using DDT anymore, and you're just like struggling to get your country in order. So there's just no focus on it. So from 1970 onwards, the rate of sleeping sickness immediately starts to go all the way back up because all of these things that colonialism had changed around the way communities were shaped, where people were living, what livelihoods were based on, those were still there just with like increased economic instability, political instability, civil unrest and a lack of a healthcare system as well as no preventative measures. So <clears throat> by the time we get into the 2000s, the prevalence rate of sleeping sickness is essentially back where it was at the start of 1900s where all of these epidemics began, which is just like really discouraging and terrible. So um, the World Health Organization, Médecins Sans Frontières, they start to pay attention again and all of the measures that we were using in the first place are slowly put back into action and I've, we've talked about it and I'll talk about it again but there is this real dire need to focus on testing, identification, treatment and reduction and those 2020 and 2030 goals are there to accomplish that but I'm sure delayed by COVID. Um, anyway, so let's Go back to this like 1970s post-colonial period for a minute and talk about sleeping sickness as one measure of the disaster that colonialism has left in its wake. It is no secret, especially to listeners of our podcast, that poverty and economic status are indicators for greater risk of disease, right? Both at an individual level and at a country level. Something we maybe don't talk about very often is the increased risk of disease caused by conflict, war, or unrest. So especially for diseases that are really complex and hard to identify and even more complex to treat like sleeping sickness, this is like extra, extra true, right? So you've got places like Angola, Uganda, the DRC, and southern Sudan where incidence rates of the disease went way up in the late 1970s. And that directly tracks to civil war and political unrest. And countries like DRC and Sudan still have the highest rates of sleeping sickness in all of Africa, followed by Angola. And those are three countries that are really well known for high rates of civil unrest. And I mean, right, like civil unrest causes insecurity, it causes broken infrastructures, specifically health systems, education systems, right? Like it's, it's food insecurity. They they all track to each other. Like it makes sense. And yeah, like there's just so many factors that come along with it. Decreased hygiene, less access to effective nutrition, inability to do contract tracing and surveillance or mobile care because it's dangerous. There's increased displacement of people. They have to move around to avoid the conflict. Like this list is just so long. And as I touched on briefly earlier um, with environmental refugees and civil displacement, you have all these humans that are forced into close proximity with animals as well as living in areas where they would not have been before. And frequently those are areas that are more populated by tsetse flies. And uh, I quote a really interesting article, virtually by definition, sleeping sickness is a public health problem in places where research infrastructure can hardly exist like we can't figure out a way to solve it because we can't safely and securely get to the spaces where it's a problem I don't know from everything we've talked about from what everything you said from everything I've been saying is just so important to remember that we can attribute this move from endemic to epidemic pretty much exclusively to colonialism Right? Colonialism instigated the first widespread forced relocation of humans to spaces where they hadn't lived before. It dismantled existing structures of trade, of living. It dismantled cultural balances that had been developed, and it left in its wake unrest and civil destruction that continues to exacerbate a variety of diseases, leaving governments often unable to provide services for citizens within the boundaries of their arbitrarily designed countries. What a disaster. I feel like we need a reminder that actually there were cultural and health systems in place that prevented a lot of these things. And they were just exacerbated through the dismantling of of existing systems to put into place ones that weren't relevant and continue to not be relevant. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about that medical legacy, though, because it's something you touched on. And I also promised you a little bit of follow up on that. And I think it's really compelling. Um, So this builds on what Angel was talking about, about this sort of this legacy of medical control of the way colonial um, colonialists treated disease. And I already mentioned we started with this like poisonous treatment that was making people blind. One of the legacies of colonialism in Africa is an extreme level of medical distrust, particularly because of the forced and aggressive treatments, giant air quotes that were taking place. um, And that we've already in part discussed so we see reflections of this still in Africa in medical distress, just like we do in black populations in the U S. And if you listen to our syphilis episode, we talk about that, but there's just a, a general unwillingness to access institutionalized health services and a certain level of disbelief or distrust in health information. And you can see this when you talk, think about rumors around HIV AIDS and how it's like a white conspiracy and it's not real. Um, or even recently you can look at the disbelief around the reality of COVID Like the president of Tanzania was like, no, it's fake, right? There's just a deep seated distrust around the institutionalized medical profession. And for good reason, those are reflections of a colonial legacy where health and medical treatment were used as tools for control and abuse and sleeping sickness was no exception. It's in fact, a very good example of that. As you mentioned, people across Central and Eastern Africa were receiving forced medical examinations, basically medical trials being conducted without consent. Medicines that were poisonous were being used. The list goes on. Even after Koch and others had discovered that that drug was poisonous, French doctors in certain French colonies kept using them, knowing that they were killing people for over a decade because the focus was on quote, broader public health rather than individual health, which just goes to show the value that they placed on black lives in the 1930s. There's also direct links between various campaigns against sleeping sickness and mistrust in modern medicine. In fact, like in the late 1980s, there were still rumors going around about how these medicinal injections for sleeping sickness actually just killed you. So people didn't want to get them. And there's even a song that's still sung in Cameroon about the negative effects of sleeping sickness and its treatments. So you can see the importance of this cultural impact. Another great note about these forced injections that colonialists used being like in forcibly injecting populations with toxic medicines is that you can directly trace the correlation between these forced injection campaigns and the transmission of hepatitis C in places like Cameroon. Because basically, they just didn't care about medical safety, and so they were just reusing the needles and spreading hep C all over the country. To this day, Cameroon has one of the highest rates of hepatitis C in the world. What?
1: So not only have these people not brought the light of western european medicine to africa they've actually made africa less healthy
0: 100% and like it's worth noting like there are links between um hepsi and leukemia for example right it's so, like there's all these repercussions and refractions through time it's it's insane it's also hypothesized that those forced injection campaigns might have contributed to the early spread of HIV for the same reason, like lack of needle cleanliness and safety because HIV hadn't yet been identified. And so they were spreading it without realizing it. I mean, they already knew they should have been using sterilized needles, but like, okay.
1: The thing is the rumors have an impact on human behavior And they're relevant for our historical discourse because they're believable. Like, not only do they confirm fears, but it actually sounds kind of likely because you can see a motivation for that kind of behavior, right?
0: Yeah, it's like, what do you do when those rumors aren't rumors? So how do you rebuild trust, you
1: know? Do they even, like, is it deserving of trust? (laughs) I mean... I mean it's it's a difficult problem and I mean it it ties into all these discussions we keep having about anti-racism mm-hmm. and like dismantling systems that discriminate and that oppress. Yeah. And like where do you even begin with that? It's such a massive yeah, like it's undertaking, a
0: socio-political but, cultural system yeah, of oppression. I mean, I think the answer to to rebuilding trust is basically to change this change the framework from like all these people who have been mistreated for hundreds and hundreds of years should now have trust in the institutions that they're going to serve them because they won't, frankly. That mistrust is justified. Those systems aren't treating them fairly. So really what it is is how to dismantle those systems in order to rebuild something that can actually be effective and inclusive for everybody. But that's like a big ask.
1: I don't know. And also involving involving the communities who are traditionally oppressed and yeah, giving and, them a seat um, at the table. Yes, because we don't know best. We do not know best. If there's one lesson to be learned from uh, European settler colonialism and its legacies, it's that we don't know best. Agreed.
0: Okay, I'm going to sum up sleeping sickness (laughs) before we solve all the world's problems. So, okay, this is how we started and this is how we're going to end it. In the modern day still, 65 million people are at risk and it still remains fatal if untreated and it is very hard to treat. And while this burden of disease is dropping and it's at its lowest rate ever with only a few thousand people now getting it each year, thanks to these treatment and elimination goals, early diagnosis of the disease remains super challenging. Often it isn't caught until late and that can cause lasting damage or death. Um, Because that diagnosis is so challenging, there's elaborate and complex testing. It requires cerebrospinal fluids. Treatment outcomes need these long follow-up times. Um, second stage drugs are toxic and hard to deliver. Obvi- obviously that places people in like rural and remote areas at the highest risk and least likelihood of being treated. Um, so we just really need a better able ability to identify the disease. We need to be able to treat it with better and safer drugs. We need to improve upon our vector control methods and also, you know, casually undo hundreds of years of colonialism. But especially important is this This disease is called African sleeping sickness for a reason, and we have seen especially firsthand how important it is who is being affected by a disease in terms of the speed and efficacy of the development of treatments, right? There are illnesses out there that are frankly just as dangerous as COVID-19. We just happen to know more about them. And they affect people living in developing nations. And we haven't made any developments for the last 20, 50, 100 years. But you've got something that's affecting everybody or affecting people in developed nations. And suddenly all this funding and effort and strategic thinking goes into solving the problem. So I think it's evident how important it is to consider who is being affected when we think about how we develop treatments. Anyway, all of this makes the treatment of this disease more complex. It's going to be hard for the WHO to meet their 2020 and 2030 goals for elimination, even with a significant amount of work. A lot of that work seems to be either redoing or undoing what's already been done, rather than developing new and more impactful techniques and medicines. And so, um, I think that speaks volumes for where we are and the reflections of of colonialism on this disease and
1: how they still remain today. I mean, that's so frustrating. Yeah. But it's a thing we see over and over again in our episodes. Like, whatever the disease we're talking about, the um, the will to do something about it, the resources to be able to do something about it, are tied to who we value. True. I do need a hooray from you, though. <laughs> All right. So, um, I read this book. Well... I tried to read this book, but it really didn't fit anywhere in um in my section, but I wanted to mention it because it's so cool. First of all, best title ever, Speaking with Vampires. Rumor in history in Colonial Africa, which I think is amazing. Yeah, so essentially a bunch of rumors um about vampires and they have specific tropes, so it's almost like these rumors are treated as if they were folklore. But you can still extract quite a bit of information for them. So there's normally a vampire rumor. It has something to do with fire stations and there's always a mob. It's really interesting. But there's a whole section on sleeping sickness and vampire rumors. So I'm going to go back to that eventually. So that's by Lu- um, by Louise White. Oh, also another hooray. Next week is my birthday. Yay! Yay! That's not the hooray, though. I've decided I'm making myself... <laughs> a Guinness chocolate cake with bailey's cream Ooh, big, yay. big yay my hooray
0: is that uh i had a great week at work we kicked off a bunch of round tables so i feel like a real professional um and i got my to
1: professional baby
0: got to talk to a lot of really interesting people about um like, making physical activity more, you know, like, culturally relevant and accessible, and it was really interesting to hear groups like Right to Play, for example, talk about space for, um, like, indigenous activities in Canada, and I was reminded about how there's this whole world out there of things that are, like, very important for health that I don't know that much about, so it was really compelling to hear people talking about, like, green space for exercise and, like, how that Ecosystem is so important for all of us here. And I don't know, I learned a lot. That's fantastic. Well, this was really exciting. And I'm so glad we did it. I'm
1: very, very happy. I'm glad we did it too. It's like we've come full circle. We did it. The end. Just kidding. We did it.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Okay. Uh, Talk to you soon. Bye. Thank you for listening to In Sickness. Researched and hosted by Angeliki and Maya. Intro track and logo by Adrian Morningstar. Sound editing by Maya.